Before we dive into this episode, we have two exciting opportunities we wanted to share. The first is that degree credit is now available through Biblingo. Biblingo is excited to partner with Campus and Kingswood University to provide undergraduate and dual enrollment degree credit for the completion of Biblingo lessons. Degree credit is available for both Greek 1 and Hebrew 1. Each of these courses are worth three credit hours. For more information, check out the link in the description of this episode. The second opportunity is that registration is currently open for our online instructor-led courses. These courses combine the Biblingo app with live tailored training from passionate instructors and a small cohort of dedicated learners. We're currently offering our level one courses for both Greek and Hebrew. These courses are perfect for beginners or those with some experience who want to refresh or strengthen their language skills. You can learn more and register through the link in the description of this episode. Now let's dive into the episode. Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. We bring together the latest research in linguistics, language acquisition, and biblical studies to better understand the biblical languages and ultimately the biblical text. As always, this episode is brought to you by Biblingo, the premier solution for learning, maintaining, and enjoying the biblical languages. Visit biblingo.org to learn more and start your 10-day free trial. I'm Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I'm excited to talk with Dr. Scott McKnight today about his new translation of the New Testament called the Second Testament. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you very much, Kevin, for having me. Yeah, so um, probably everyone knows who Scott McKnight is, but maybe you can tell us, um, in your own words, a, a brief bio about um, who you are. Okay, I'm a, I'm a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. I've been teaching four decades uh, in seminaries and, and undergrads, and um, I'm an author. I've been married to my high school great uh, junior high sweetheart since, uh, so we've been married almost 50 years. We have two children and two grandchildren, and we've lived in the same home for almost 40 years. 37 wow. years. So I'm closer to the end of my career than the beginning of my career like you, but uh, I've loved what I've done. And uh, this was a wonderful invitation that I received from InterVarsity's John Boyd to translate the New Testament in a way that was more like John Goldingay uh, in his first Testament than like Tom Wright in his Kingdom New Testament. And if you may know, their Bibles were combined. The Golden Gate translation of the Old Testament, or the First Testament, and Tom Wright's Kingdom New Testament were combined in England, SCM, I believe, maybe SBCK, called the, um, the Bible for Everyone. And when I read that, when I read, I got it. I got a copy of the whole thing. I thought this would be a cool Bible to have, sit on my desk. I started reading John Golden Gate, and I thought, Okay, I've read Tom Wright's Kingdom New Testament for several years, and they're not doing the same thing at all. Hmm. 
So I just sat on that. And then at an academic meeting, I bumped into the uh, main editor at InterVarsity, John Boyd. And I said, John, I said, those two combined are not at all the same. Those are two completely different theories of translation. And uh, InterVarsity published John Goldingay's First Testament as a separate volume, not as combined Bibles. So he said, he just said, what do you think we should do? And I said, I think you should get a New Testament translation like Golden Gay's First Testament. He said, would you do it? I said, yes, I will. <laughs> so there you go. So what is it about Golden Gay's First Testament and your Second Testament that are distinctive then? Well, it's a good question, Kevin, um, because uh, the, I've made some comments over the years about the NIV, the ESV. You know, I call them tribal. They, uh, you know, the ESV reflects a certain group in the United States, Christians, and the N NIV does, and the NLT kind of does, and it's kind of tribal. We can't, we can't deny that. So, uh, so I've made criticisms, uh, but I didn't translate this New Testament to correct other translations at all. I don't think they're wrong in what they're doing. In fact, I think the NIV, especially is very good at what it does. And Eugene Peterson's really good at what he did. He knows what he's doing. He knows his languages. Um, so their, their approach to translation, I think they've figured out what they're doing, and they've done it very well. But I've always felt, as someone who reads the Greek New Testament, that our, our translations, in some ways, are just too good of English to fit with what the Greek text actually says. So they have to interpret. Translators are interpreters. In fact, there's a classic line, uh, I think it's in Italian, tradute, uh, something like that. It's the translator is a traitor, is, mm -hmm. the, is the translation. And there's something that takes place like that in translation, is that you interpret and the more you interpret, the less you're translating in a technical, in a, let's say, a really clear just translation sense. And I wanted to uh, offer a translation like Golden Gaze. And I sometimes refer to the Second Testament as an untranslation. Hmm. So so that, that language might get to the point of what's going on here. It sounds to me a bit like, I don't know how familiar you are with like the Bible translation world, like outside of English, but like, you know, in, into other languages, people will often do a back translation. Basically, when you translate, you know, from, let's say, Greek and Hebrew into like I worked on a project for an Aztec language called Nahuatl. And basically what we did was they took that translation and they made a very, very literal translation into English. But the point of the translation is so that you can see that the Nahuatl right? The, 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 that's that's the whole idea of translating it, it, with a back translation is so that you can see the original better in yeah, your own well, language. That, I think that, yeah, that's that's more of what we're doing here. So so why do you call it the Second Testament and not the New? I think that would be the first thing people would see. You know, obviously the title, they would say, you know, what's, what's going on here with, with that? Okay. I will quote the Bible in <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8, 7. For if the first covenant were infallible, there would not have been a place for pursuing a second. So there you have a first and a second. I think old and new only occurs 
in that context in the New Testament one time in Second Corinthians. Yeah. And in Hebrews 10, 9, it says, um, he lifts away the first in order that he may establish the second. So there's biblical warrant for this, first and second. Um, I think the problem for, all right, l- let me say this. Uh, I'm old enough to remember that when, have you ever heard of Philip Payne, New Testament scholar? Okay, very good New Testament scholar. His father was a man named J. Barton Payne, who created helped create the Evangelical Theological Society. He was a very conservative man, a missionary, I believe, in Japan. or No, I think he was teaching in the United States. He wrote a book that I read as a college junior called A Theology of the Older Covenant, or maybe it was the Older Testament. And so that was when I first heard about it. I was saying there's a the older uh, verses, and the New Testament is sort of an older, as old as well. Um, and then um, Golden Gay, I think, is more, was more concerned with how people see old as bad, antiquated, uh, useless. And so he wanted to sort of update, upgrade the status of the so-called Old Testament. So that that's why he called it first and second. And and other people have done this over the years. Old Testament scholars are constantly defending themselves for studying that part of the Bible, the Hebrew <laughs> Bible. Yeah. Always yeah. in Christian circles. It is interesting. I mean, in Israel, it is much more common to call the well, really, the the proper terms like Hebrew Bible, right? But Old Testament is a bad word, right? <laughs> that that is yeah, very much yeah. um, they don't they don't like calling it the Old Testament, and so that that's what you know how I kind of read it. I think uh, Messianic. I, I think you're talking about Messianic Judaism, right? Yeah, I think they would like uh, first and second for sure, for sure. Yeah, very much would, so. They would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Let's just talk about some some of your translation conventions. So this is, you know, I think when people open this up. Right, and they start to read it, they will immediately be struck by how different it is than you know their NIV sitting on the shelves or whatever. So, just to you know, quote you in the preface, you say, "My goal is to help English readers experience what the Greek reader experiences in reading the New Testament in Greek." And you said this before, right? If the Second Testament feels awkward and choppy and crunchy, it is because the Greek feels that way. I, I really like the um, adjective crunchy there as well. It's a, it's a yeah. great description. That came from John Boyd. That was a good <laughs> word. In fact, I thought I said it, and then I think he said it, so I'm not sure. You know, you asked me this question one time, and uh, you were right. You said, does it feel choppy in Greek, or does it feel choppy in English? Well, especially English, because if you just look at it in Greek, it's not working according to the Greek-English word orders and stuff like that. It doesn't, it doesn't work right. But at the same time, sometimes Greek is choppy because, for instance, frequently it doesn't use the word is. You have to supply it. Sometimes it uh, has the order of words a little bit out of order the way we think. Uh, it has sentences that are incomplete it has a thing called that we call a genitive absolute, which in many ways, the word absolute doesn't make a whole lot of sense to most people who read English, but it means something that is there that is not connected to what follows. And so it doesn't really work quite right. So English translations make it work better in English. 
And that's what I I leave alone. I leave it as disconnected from the main sentence. So I want I want people to look. I can't. I know of someone who's actually translating the Gospels, and I think the whole New Testament, and using the word order of the Greek sentence. Mm. Now think about that. <laughs> um, it won't work. It, I can guarantee you, it won't work in English. That's too far. I want people to supplement their normal translation with the Second Testament to get a little bit more, uh, a sharper profile of what that sentence was like, so they can see, say, what the NIV, the ESV, the NLT, whatever translation they're using, actually is doing to the Greek itself, to to interpret it, to make it sound like an English equivalent, which is what they do. So would it be fair then that you're your like kind of purpose for this is so that they would read it with another English translation to, to compare. Exactly. Well, exactly. Uh, just as John Golden Gay said about the first Testament, it is, it is for people who are familiar with the English Bible. And this is a supplemental text. It's not meant in a sense to read from the pulpit on Sunday morning. I mean, Sometimes I would like for that to happen, and I think it can happen. But others are not quite that clear for people. If they saw it in writing, they could make sense with it. But uh, it is a supplemental translation. And I also think, Kevin, it will be really helpful for Greek students who are learning to read the Greek New Testament, and they need, you know, they need some cribs. They need some helps. Mm-hmm. And this this could be a, just an immediate opener for them they could say oh that's what's going on here yeah that's great i think when you frame it in that way it's also it makes more sense when you just you know open up a passage to say to see what you're doing so one of the things you also say in the preface is that you try to choose one english word for one greek word and this is something that i mean it would be consistent with what we've said anyway right just trying to reflect the greek more how do you pick which word? So, I mean, I, I'm particularly thinking here of, you know, you have, a, you have a section on like theological words. And I think that's one of the things, again, that when people open this up, they will immediately be struck by, you know, things like John the Dipper, right? Um, they, will, they will think, oh, that's really different, right? Than John the Baptizer or the Baptist, right? How do you pick these words, right? And yeah. and and why do you, you know, kind of intentionally translate some theological words you can like de-theologize them. Okay, the uh, those are two questions, and they are really get to the heart of the hard work that I had to do. There are some simple words like erkomai, I come, I go, uh, paruomai, I come, I go. But I wanted to use a different. I wanted to use a different English word for each of those Greek words as consistently as possible, and every time if possible in order that English Bible readers, in a sense, could see that the same word is being used if they remember it from a different context. Well, I decided that the word paruomai, it comes from the Greek, the noun is parea, and it means a journey or a trip. So I use the word journey for paruomai. I make it a verb, he journeys somewhere. Um, and, and I was able to do that, I believe, every time that word occurred. Uh, there are other words where I did not feel that I could actually pull this off. But I'll give you one story. My editor, she made a suggestion. She said, I don't like your translation of this word. It was in Matthew's gospel. 
I said, okay, this word occurs 74 times in the New Testament. Did you look up all 74? She said, okay, I see what you're doing. No, and I'm not going to look up all 74. And and that's what, Kevin, that's what was really hard. There would be times I'd get 50 words, you know, let's say a word occurs 75 terms, times. I'd get 50 words deep and I'd say, this is not going to work. I'm going to have to do another word or use more than one English word. And sometimes I did. Now, here's a good example. Pistis, pistuo, I, uh, faith, I believe, I trust. I, uh, an allegiance, I knew that this word has different senses in such a way that I didn't think there was one English word that could do all the uses. So I use three different words. Sometimes I use to trust, sometimes I use allegiance, and sometimes I use the faith. And sometimes I vary only because I need to show the variation. I couldn't tell if it meant trust or allegiance. So I would just sort of flip a coin and say, this time I'm going to use allegiance and this time I'm going to use trust. Um, and I don't have a problem with that. At times I chose minority readings, minority translations. You know, an English word for a Greek word is called a gloss. All right. So there are uh, standard glosses. But the standard gloss is about, let's say, 65%, 75% right. And a minority gloss is never chosen because it's always more likely that it means. And sometimes I've chosen minority glosses just to give that word some play in the New Testament. Okay, now theological terms. This is one of the first things that I realized in translating, because the process of translating was uh, in some ways surprising. I've been reading the Greek New Testament since I was in high school. I, I taught myself a beginning Greek grammar. I had no idea what I was doing. I pronounced it an aorist tense. I didn't even know how to pronounce these things. And I had no one to tell me. I just was reading it in my bedroom. And then I took a lot of Greek in college, read most of the New Testament while I was in college. But what I've learned uh, in translating is how Christianized the lexicon that we all use is Bauer, Art, Gingrich, Danker, which is an amazing accomplishment over time by great scholars. Bauer was good. Arndt was good. Gingrich is good. And I knew Fred Danker, and we talked every year at, in an academic meeting about what he was doing. So I, I I like it and I use it, but I realized that the words that they were using were so Christianized in their meaning that it was no longer a first century sense. And John Goldingate did this. For instance, he translates, I think like we would use the word kosher or something like that. I think he uses the word taboo. Hmm. Um, you know, that's not so religious to use the word taboo. I made a conscious choice along with Golden Gate's translation to knock out uh, religiously or theologically loaded glosses or translations and tried to give um, a, the kind of meaning, the kind of sense that a first century person would hear who didn't have a theological dictionary on their bookshelf that they could pull off and get a definition of justification. 
So just justification is one of those terms. It's so loaded in theological history that it's way beyond what anything Paul would have meant when he used the word dikaio or dikaiosune. So I just use the word right. And if you know, you're not old enough to know this, but when E.P. Sanders was doing his great work in the early 80s, he translated uh, justification right. I think he translated rightwisen. I, I think he did then, the, the verb as rightify. Uh, I don't know if he did that. I, I think it was rightwisen. But then rectify rec- was yeah. the translation of the apocalyptic people. They use yeah. rectify. Now, that, you know, that's Latin. A Latin word made, uh, you know, made abstract. So um, there have been people who've tried, but I, I did all I could to just use the simple word right, and it it works pretty well. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it it is it's true that there's almost a unfortunately like a necessary misreading in English when you when you use justification because people think of the doctrine right when you use the that's word, right. and then it's and then but their doctrine is built off of all of this, you know, baggage, not to say it's good or bad, but, but it's different, right. Than, uh, than what Paul might've meant. I just want to touch on two other issues that you, again, that would just strike people. So like transliterations of, of names, right. So, you know, you would, you would immediately see Jesus, not as Jesus, but as Jesus. Why do you, why do you do it that way? And Paul as Paulos, right. Why do you translate the Greek term and why do you do it in nominative case so like if you're going to do it in greek why not follow the case settings like paulu right paulo right in different contexts i mean what makes you do it in the way that you do basically okay well i'm not gonna put in accusative and genitive and dative cases because we don't have the that sort of thing terminations in english that wouldn't make any sense to people so i i left it in the nominative okay so i i think that was easy i did it because john goldengate did it that's why I, I saw that. And the second thing is, I have griped for years about the colonizing of ancient names into English forms. So let's just say we have the letter of James. Okay, James goes back to an old French word, Jacobus, which goes back to Jacobus, which goes back to Jacobus, in Greek and Jacob are Yaakov in yeah. Hebrew. Yeah. Well, all right. Now, just think about that. When we call him James, do we hear the echo of the patriarch of Genesis? No, we don't even hear a Hebrew word. Uh, but it's Greek word, so I'm not translating the uh, the Hebrew version of the words. So, for instance, um, if you follow college basketball. We have a there's a basketball player in the Milwaukee. I mean, pro basketball. There's a basketball player in Milwaukee by the name of Giannis. Okay, we don't say okay, but in the United States we call you John. <laughs> we don't do that to people, and we don't say uh, say one of my. You may know my former student Akiva Cohen in Jerusalem. Do you know? Uh, him? No, I don't. Okay. I don't say, Akiva, you have to go by the name priest. So you're Akiva priest. We don't do that. So Golden Gate did it. And because I think it's it ruins the evocations of what those terms were. But more importantly, it takes us back in time to the New Testament period. And it moves us culturally out of English and America into a Greek world. 
that's why that's why I want to do that. I want people to say, you know, my Greek friends who when I tell them what I'm doing, they go, I'm so glad you're doing that. <laughs> These are our Greek names. Leave them alone. So, yeah. all right. So that's why. And of course, I'm not going to do the different cases. I've not been asked that one. Why not but, put it in the accusative? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, Paul is actually pretty close in Greek and English, right? It's Follows. but. Yeah. But the only difference is the os, the 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 nominative case ending, right? So if yeah. you just take off the case ending, it's actually and so I think there, like you can see this echo, right? Um, I mean, you can just when you're reading the Greek New Testament, you immediately see oh Paulos, oh that's Paul, right? Jesus is much harder to see, right? Or you know, and some of these other ones are even harder, right? I would not put, and neither did John Golden Gay. We're not going to put Greek endings on Greek. <laughs> names because people don't know what these Greek endings are. They'd go, why is it sometimes Paulos and sometimes Paulu or Pauluf <laughs> and, and sometimes Paulon and sometimes Paolo? What, what's yeah. what's going on here? Well then you got to explain cases in Greek. Well that doesn't that doesn't work. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just you know just pointing out like that's what people will when they see it and they see Paulos or they, they'll say oh okay like you know that that is the just nominative ending right yeah. for for Paul. So so last question before we get into like some some specific questions about how you're translating some things. And and I think this is I mean we've touched on this before but how would you describe your translation in terms of the literal versus dynamic equivalence spectrum because people are going to um that's kind of their their terminology that they use, right? I mean from what we've already said you seem to be very much on the like literal spectrum if we're going to use that terminology and and how you know and you said basically this would be used for really comparing to more dynamic translations so how do you envision this you know helping people understand the text better in that way it's a good question when i began i taught i taught greek exegesis for 12 years beginning greek etc then i started teaching undergrads and i didn't teach this and then I went to hear a lecture by Doug Moo, who's on the Committee of Bible Translation for the NIV. And I heard him refer to the theories as word for word and thought for thought. And I thought, nobody uses that anymore. I don't hear that from anyone. Well, he said, yeah, it's it's used quite a bit. So I don't know all the language that some of these uh, translation theorists are using for, let's say, the dynamic that is involved or lack thereof in translating. But I I used to always teach Eugene Nida and the you know committee that 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 group out of um their society of translations and I I always liked the idea of formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. I, I like that language. Uh it works for me. And I think it it provides the sort of the options. And um, a dynamic equivalent uh, is sort of a, how would I say, gird up my loins in English in a way that would make sense, because nobody knows what girding up loins is about. So you say, um, tuck in your belt, you know, pull up your pants, pull up your sleeves, something like that, mm -hmm. right? Put on your work clothes. Those are dynamic equivalents. A formal equivalent, King James Version, you know, gird up the loins of your mind. Doesn't make a lick of sense for most people today, but that's a formal equivalent. So my translation, the Second Testament, intentionally 
is formally equivalent, more so than any English translation I'm aware of. So I'm quite happy to tell the ESV people, if you want a formal equivalent, I've got it for you. <laughs> uh, now, they're not going to agree with me when I use siblings instead of brothers, so I so I vary at times. But um, it, it leans very much toward the formal intentionally so that people can see what English translations that they're using is doing, they, what they are doing, and that they can compare it and sort of see the... Uh, the simpler structure that was actually involved in the Greek text. Yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, a lot of people in that circle kind of view formal equivalence as like more faithful, you know? Um, it yeah. can be seen yeah. as like, oh, I'm being faithful to the original. Interestingly, on the other side, they they think the same thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, yeah. And, because uh, they're trying to get I, to the meaning, <laughs> right? Yeah, the 1984 NIV is more formally equivalent than the ESV. And the ESV, you know, when they first came out, there was some inappropriate uh, braggadocia with some of the ESV people about how they were more accurate. And that language really carried the day with a lot of people, and it still works for them, and that's fine. The ESV is a reliable translation. But um, it's still, it's it's on a spectrum, as the word you used. It's on a grading system. At times, it's more of a dynamic equivalent. At times, it's more formal. But where it was formal is where their theological lines and their needs for a translation crossed. That's where they wanted to use their formal equivalents. Right. And that's why I said they won't like that I translate Adelphoi, commonly translated brothers, as siblings. Right. And it, well, of course, you know, it's, it is one of these words that does carry both of those meanings. And because you are trying to pick one Greek word for one English word, right, you you kind of have to pick which one to go with. That brings us to some of your actual choices. You know, one question I had that that struck me as I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount was God blesses for Makarioi. Makarioi, you know, hoi pitokoi into pneumati. So it's, uh, you know, well, it's normally blessed, right? <laughs> that, that's the the normal way in, in most translations. So in this case, right, it is more dynamic, right? In the sense it that is. there is no, there's no God there, right? It's just makadioi. Why do you translate it as God blesses? And, and how do you get there from the Greek? Okay. It's a fair question. And um, it is an instance where I have a more dynamic equivalent. One of the things I'm trying to do is uh, disturb the familiar. The biggest problem in Bible reading is familiarity. And it was it was so difficult in translating because mm -hmm. I knew what the text said before I translated it. And it was hard to resist the familiar. And I found myself just going in the familiar direction because I wasn't thinking clearly enough or hard enough. And I had to go back and correct things because I was just, okay. So the word makarioi, of course, has a long Hebrew uh, long Hebrew history as well. Uh, not, of course, makarioi, but uh, ashrei, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, not shalom. What am I thinking of? Uh, Baruch. Barakot. The, yeah, Baruch. So I have studied this word for years. And biggest disappointment for me in the common English Bible was when they translated it happy. Hmm. And when I saw, I've seen other people translate it fortunate, and I'm going, no, that's not what this means. Makarii, makarios, 
in Greek, in the context of Jesus, in the context of the Jewish world, and I know he's speaking, the translation is in Greek, um, is about a divine blessing of a person because they're living before God the way God wants them to live. So I added God blesses uh, just because it's not representative. Now, it's not like people are lucky or fortunate or happy. It's not impersonal. It's the it's an act of God on a person of divine approval. So that's why I added God blesses. And you will be totally correct if you say it's more of a dynamic equivalent than a formal, and I'll say guilty <laughs> and happy about it. I think part of the problem is that it it conflicts with some of your other, you know, yeah. uh, tenets, right? Of of being yeah. different, yeah. of getting rid of more of the. I mean, this is obviously theological still, but it's when you read the Beatitudes like this, you 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 read it differently, right? And it, I mean, it is very very easy when you get to Matthew five three to just go into, you know, auto autopilot, right? <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, for those the kingdom of heaven. It's it's just yeah, it, that's the that's familiarity with it. But I think it's I think just the word blessed uh, gives it an impersonal feel that the translations traditionally have missed. And so I've given a minority translation here by using God blesses. Okay, you're going to ask another one. This well, is you know, my favorite one. <laughs> I just to point, point out one more thing on that one. I, I agree with you that I think happy is wrong. But and, and I think what that does is it screens out the fact that God is the one that makes you happy. Right. And that's the that's yeah. ultimately the problem. Our word blessed often it just doesn't allow i mean it, it allows for the absence of god sometimes in the way it's used you know blessed can just be like yeah. oh it's i'm i'm blessed which a lot of times just means i have a bunch of stuff so why do you translate pharisee as as observant the word pharisee has taken on a meaning all of its own um it means a legalist it means someone who is a fake a fraud and I feel bad about how Christians have talked about Pharisees. So if you call someone a Pharisee today, that's never a compliment. It's always a criticism. Mm -hmm. And I'm with, say, my friend Amy Jill Levine, who says, no, you Christians need to, I think she would disagree with me translating observant. I think she would say, and, and she would say, you Christians need to quit talking about Pharisees in, in the way you do. Okay. That is what I'm trying to do, actually, by using the word observant. Now, I agree with Yair Furstenberg and many others who would see the Pharisees as progressives in the first century, as lenient. I don't know that he would say lax. Does he? He might use the word. I mean, he's he's Hebrew, I think, so he might not use the word lax. But, um, and I've read I've read his his stuff on this, and I and I agree that the seekers of smooth things. In 4Q, uh, Nahum, uh, Pesher Nahum is is about the the seekers of smooth things are Pharisees, and they are being criticized by the Essenes, maybe the Sadducees, but probably the Essenes, and that they're um, seen as people who adjust the law for the sake of the people to make the law more practicable, and that they were therefore pastorally sensitive and seeker friendly. I agree with that on the Pharisees. And this is probably why they are popular. 
Kevin, I'm writing a book on the Pharisees right now. Oh, so uh, I'd be very I'm, interested. I'm really to into that. this. So I, I totally agree. But I, and I struggled with this. A Pharisee in the first century was someone who, let's say, had was a part of a group of people that believed they were mostly in Jerusalem, and they had, uh, they had, they were politically engaged, but they were not politically powerful. They were not in the inner circles of the ruling class. They were sort of agents for the ruling classes with the people because they were popular with the people. Um, they were popular because they were pastorally engaged with the people and could could communicate with them. I often told my students for years at, in college that you would have loved to have a Pharisee as a next door neighbor. They would have been a good person and you would have enjoyed the Pharisees. And they go, no, no, that's not. I say, yes, they were not legalists. They were not pettifogging. They were not mean spirited, uh, but they were they. They had a tradition. So here's the thing. A Pharisee is someone who precisely interprets the Torah like evangelical Christians in the United States and observes their interpretations, their development of, of what the text says, and they try to teach, let's say, try to get other people to live that way as a way of living the Torah before God. So what was the word I was going to use? I don't think the word Pharisee uh, is going to work with the readers who will read me. So I wanted to I wanted a stunning term that would shock them out of that, and they are not going to find any Pharisees in my translation. They're going to find the observant. Now, an observant person today is a person who follows halakha, the halakot. An observant person is someone who takes their Jewish faith seriously enough. And I've met, I have lots of Jewish friends. We live in a community with lots of Jewish people. And I've had lots of conversations. I can remember one man I knew named John who said, I'm not terribly observant. Uh, that's how he would he would finish when he whenever he talked to me, because he knew I knew about Judaism. So to me, I chose the word observant because it's positive. And it says that they are following the Torah as they interpret it. But at the same time, if you read the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew 23, you're going to find out that Jesus disagrees with them quite a bit. So, yeah. uh, but he disagrees with them over their halakot. Yeah, it's interesting. Then, you know, really it is observant of halakha. And that is that is a different thing, right, than observant of Torah. Right. Everyone was had their own halakha that they were trying to follow. Right. And so well, people were arguing whether they were following Torah in the right way or not. Yes, right? that's exactly right. And I, I don't think there's a whole lot of I think in Jerusalem, in the uh, elite classes, the, they were debating these these sorts of things. But I, I do think that uh, Josephus is more more accurate than not accurate that the bulk of the people followed the Pharisaic interpretations of the Torah. So that doesn't make everybody a Pharisee. But I think the Pharisees made the law doable mm -hmm. in ways that made the ordinary people basically Pharisees in their observance, in their if they followed the Halakha. Um, but he, here's one thing I would say. I believe that most people think that their interpretation of the Torah is more or less the Torah. Yeah. So that, yes, the 
they were observant of the halakha because they thought that's what the Torah in in they thought it was observance of the Torah. Well, that's interesting. I um yeah, I, I'll be very interested to see your book on the Pharisees. If you have a minute to respond to these uh, criticisms, I am a part of this group that we were chatting, you know, before this discussion, very large Facebook group <laughs> called Nerdy Biblical Language Majors. The moderator, he posted a number of posts. He you know, will post Revelation 1.6, for example, and this is your translation, it says to the one who loves us and who loosened us from our sins by his blood and made us an empire, priest for his father God, to him be splendor and grip into the era of eras. Amen. And then he says, okay, I'm trying to understand grip. Here's the Greek for this benediction. Amen. And then he says, kratos. And so this is part of just, you know, a number of posts, like I said, of him questioning your translation. A lot of times questioning your understanding of the Greek or your choice of words to reflect the Greek. How do you respond to something like this where people are, you know, questioning the translation because it's something very different and they're saying it doesn't accurately reflect the the Greek New Testament? Well, I'm not going to tolerate them to say it's not accurate. I know it's accurate, but they might prefer a different accuracy than what I prefer. But like he doesn't like the word kratos. Well, mm-hmm. I use the Greek word krato, krateo, I translate it as grip. So when I got to the noun, I used the word grip. Okay, so I can live with that. He doesn't like the way I translate basileia. Okay. All right, this is, a, this is an interesting word, and I think it has um, ambience. Um, and I think the word, okay, let's stay with this. He, does, he doesn't like that I use the word empire. And he made the, doesn't he make the statement that the word uh, is not, basileia is not used for the Roman Empire in Greek writings, is what he says. Yeah, and I, these are I actually, that that's, to be fair, these are some of the comments, but yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that the Greek word basileia is never used for the Roman Empire. I don't know that. Um, but that's that wasn't really what I was looking for. All right. Um, in the New Testament, basileia in the Gospels is used um, in contrast to the current rule that is existing in Judea and Galilee. Okay. And that word that is used from Herod, say Agrippa, Herod the Great, Archelaus, in case you got uh, even New Testament will use Antipas as a king. Uh, so they've got Basileus and they've got Basileia for these regions. These are Roman designated kingdoms. They are encompassed by the empire. When Jesus calls it the empire of God, he is swallowing up, as it were, colonizing the Roman Empire into the empire of God. So hmm. I that's why I chose the word empire. I I like that word. Um and I think I think it does some things that need to be said. Furthermore, Kevin, kingdom is meaningless to most people today because they've used it so many times. In fact, evangelicals use the word kingdom in ways that are positively anti-Semitic. They've wiped out territory and Jewishness when they use the word. And this started in the 19th century in Germany when they tried to universalize this term. And it ended up meaning 
in many evangelical circles, nothing more than salvation. And it became the salvation gospel. Well, that's the Greek word basileia never means salvation. It's never paired. You know how parallelism works in the Hebrew Bible. It's never paired with uh, malkut. Salvation is not. So uh, that that was one thing. Uh, and I totally disagree with what he said or who someone said about Ionas. So what I did when you sent me this note that someone said that um, era of eras is not justified. He said, read Greek written by non-Christian Greek readers like Plato. So I look up the Cambridge Ancient Greek uh, lexicon, the brand new one. Mm -hmm. The glosses are um, life, lifespan, age, and era. So I dis I disagree with that. Plus, Olam probably means that as well. So, and that's why it is uh, age to age. That's the idea of it's just going to keep on going. But an age is an era. And sometimes the Greek word ion is clearly a period of time in the New Testament. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sympathize with anybody who says, I prefer a different word. Uh, perfectly fine. You know, that's, that's what translators do. But, um, to say I haven't thought through these things or something like that, or to suggest that, that's just not the case. I worked through these terms pretty hard. Well, I think, so. and I think part of it is, is just a misunderstanding of what you're trying to do here. You know, yeah. if, if you are just trying to take, you know, I own and figure out what, what English word can substitute every time for it, um, knowing that there's going to be times where in English, it's not going to make as much sense, but, but saying that, what what you want the reader to to do is actually think about those other occurrences, right? And say, oh, this is that this is supposed to be that same Greek word, right? And then yep. connect those dots, right? Whereas in in a you know normal translation, they would just get the meaning, right? And and it might not be the same English words. I think part of this, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here to talk about it, is just because you know it, it's it's kind of irrelevant how. Plato and Aristotle and all these people use these terms, right? In it, from your translation philosophy, right? Um, because you're not trying to yes. pick the best English word, you know. If you include all the literature, you're trying to pick a, a word that you know you've you've already said even minority words sometimes to shake people up, okay. and and yeah. to and, that, and this is get one of them to connect the dots. Exactly. Well, well said. This has been a lot of fun. Do you have any? Final thoughts on, uh, you know, specifically how your translation, you know, again, we've, we've touched on this, but might serve the church and the scholarly community or anything else you want to say at all about about your your new translation. Yes. And thank you. know, I want to thank you again for having me on. This is fun because most of the people who've interviewed me for the Second Testament <laughs> couldn't even read Greek. Um, <laughs> so so it was it, it was a different kind of interview. I want people to understand that I'm not correcting these other translations. I know the NIV works very well for people. I grew up sometimes with the NASB, but I grew up on the King James, more literal, more formal. Uh, but I, I follow, I'm following the path set by John Golden Gate in the First Testament to provide a more formal equivalent that will give people a bit of a feel for how the Greek text actually works. So I would encourage them to use it as a supplemental reading to their normal reading. 
I think I'm going to surprise them. I think I'm going to slow them down. I think at times I might frustrate them. But I think one of the best things is they're going, I don't think I've ever read this verse. And then they'll <laughs> go to their translation and go, oh, I see what's going on here. And that, to me, is a really good thing, is to be asking those kinds of questions of Bible reading. We are so familiar with English translations that sound so common to us, like the NIV has a philosophy not to use English words above the 12th grade English level, American English level. Right? Who, who says that that's the level at which we should write? Luke did not write at that level. He mm -hmm. clearly did not write at that level. He used some language that you don't find elsewhere. Second half of the book of Acts and also the pastoral epistles. This is some very sophisticated Greek. So I wanted to give people a feel for what a um, first century, sort of the, the level of the expertise of Greek of an individual author. I, I thought I could do this easier than I could. But with a desire to keep the same Greek word with the same English word, it was more difficult. At times, I was just tempted to make Luke's sentences very sophisticated just because I felt like Luke is sophisticated. And I want people to feel that. But if at times you have to look up the word in an English dictionary, I think that's a good word. I think that's that might have been what people said when they heard Luke. Someone said, what, what does that word mean? Uh, and that would have been fine. So I hope to, to help people supplement their Bible reading, and I hope it surprises them and uh, blesses them. And I, I can tell you, I'm getting letters every day from pastors and people, Bible readers who are really enjoying the translation. So it's been it's been very rewarding. Uh, the unfortunate thing is because we're we're not a whole committee, and we don't have 75 uh, different printings that have come out. You know, we find mistakes. And it just irritates the daylight. It's one thing to have a mistake in a book I've written about, let's just say, the Pharisees. But one in the Bible. I don't like the ones <laughs> in the Bible. So. For sure. Well, I I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about, you know, really your heart for um, having people, you know, kind of wake up to to the Bible again. So that's, that's uh, yeah. definitely an encouragement. So that's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages Podcast. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also follow Biblingo on social media to discuss the episode with us and other listeners. And don't forget to visit biblingo.org to start your 10-day free trial of Biblingo.